1: Trademarking an item or a process is seen by most companies as a way to secure their signature. There are also so many different things to trademark, but in an interesting case in Europe recently tested that theory. French shoe designer Christian Louboutin is the maker of uh, very high stiletto shoes for women. He also makes men's shoes as well, but he had been in a fight to trademark the fact that he makes the soles of the shoes his company produces the color red. So he is basically asked if he can trademark red soles on shoes. The European Union's highest court said the answer to this question was no. To discuss this interesting case, we are joined on the phone by Deborah Gerhardt, who's an associate professor of law at the University of North Carolina. Peter Carroll who is an associate professor at the New England Law School in Boston. And also here in studio, Ludovica Cesario, who is a postdoctoral research fellow in marketing here at the Wharton School. Ludovica, great seeing you again. Thanks great for coming seeing over. Great you again. Thank, Thank you. you for having me. Deborah, Peter, great to have you with us today. Thank you both. Thank pleasure
0: you. to be here.
1: Thank you. I, I really... I'd never heard of this before <laughs> but but trademarking the sole of a shoe because of the <laughs> color Give us the, a little bit of the background on this, if you can.
2: Yeah, so it's interesting because every time we think about trademarking, we start with the brand name and the logo, right? Those are the things that companies want to protect first. But especially in luxury, there are other things that consumers come to recognize as a symbol or signature for the brand that need to be protected. Think, for example, of Burberry's trench coat and the design pattern. Think of the Converse um Chuck Taylor shoes, yeah, the high right? The design, Taylors, yeah. exactly. Those are trademarked as well. And so for Christian Louboutin, the red sole is the signature of the shoe, and thus it makes sense that he wants to protect it in every um, jurisdiction in the world. And so he has successfully registered, for example, in the U.S. But in Europe, the court has recently said no. Um, you need to understand that for a consumer, the red sole means something, right? right? Even if you don't know it's a Louboutin shoe, because it's been so um used and discussed, in just the popular. Price and stars wear them all the time. Um, you know, Lady Gaga was wearing them. Adam Driver was wearing them the other night at Stephen Colbert. So they're just part of our culture right now. And so from a consumer perspective, they know that that red soul signals something. It signals luxury. It signals quality. Um, it's a status symbol. It signals um, sexiness in general. Yeah. And so it makes sense that they want to trademark um that they want to trademark that. Think of Cardi B, for example. Uh, she, in her super hit, Bodak Yellow, uh, she actually talks about Christian Louboutin's red-soled shoe yeah. as a way to say that she's made it. Like If this. you wanted to, these expensive, these red bottoms, these bloody shoes. Hit the score, I can get them both, I don't want to choose. Right, So So she can get them both. Which is a very popular song right now. (laughs) It is a very popular song. And so by saying that she can afford them now, like a pair is about $1,500. So by saying that she doesn't have to choose, it means that she has made it.
1: Uh, from the legal perspective, uh, Deborah and Peter, Deborah, I'll start with you. I, I, and I understand this is Europe and, and it, it may sit a little bit differently than here in the United States. But the reaction from you when you hear of the European court saying no, that he cannot trademark the red sole of the shoe?
0: True surprise, because in the United States, we normally have had uh, less protection for fashion designs. Then we, we see over in Europe, especially in the copyright space, we are just not uh, as open to protecting fashion designs as they are in Europe. So if here's a flip where we have a situation where the U.S. has said, yes, you may have your trademark in that red sole, especially in contrast with the rest of the shoe. Mm-hmm. But in Europe, they've said no.
1: Peter?
3: Uh, yeah, I, I agree with Debra. It's somewhat surprising, though I do think that this is an interesting point where fashion sort of meeting trademark instead of copyright, because Europe in general with trade dress has been more resistant than the U.S. to give protection to shapes as trademarks. So we're talking about actual things in the world um, and how they could function as trade trademarks. So in that way, Europe has been more restrictive, but they've also been more protective of fashion. So it's an interesting way in which kind of seeing fashion reaching a trademark law and sort of the who you are question um, as being different in the U.S. Well, and t- Europe.
1: Take us in. You mentioned the shape, which obviously is, is part of the reason why the European Union Court said no. What is it about the shape, Peter, in your, in that that the court is saying you, you're not allowed to protect that?
3: Well, Europe's generally resistant to protecting shapes, and when, as I read the uh, decision out there, um, it's not just the color red in the abstract. They're talking about they're talking about the color red in the shape of the sole of a shoe. So it's sort of you can think of that mm-hmm. footprint shape, and it's the red in that configuration that they're talking about out there.
1: But but realistically, I, I mean, there are so many different shades of red. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, are we talking specifically about this? actually tone of red color that is being used, Ludovica, on the on the shoe here? Oh, yeah.
2: So the, the color red that Christian Louboutin uses has actually a specific Pantone number. So yeah. it's Pantone, if you are interested, 181663. So it is that specific shade of red that he wants to protect. So it's not just any red-soled shoe. It's that glossy, you know, Pantone 181663 that he's trying to protect.
1: But part of this also is the fact that I guess there was a, a, a shoemaker— uh, a Dutch shoemaker that basically was using that same type of color but on a much more affordable type of shoe as well.
2: Yeah, and I think that's a, you know, the the whole idea here is that not only is it important from a branding perspective, but and this is my area of expertise, which is counterfeiting and if you think about it, copying a design is a form of piracy, right? Yeah. You're stealing somebody else's design. So I think that's what they were going for and the the, the cheaper end, you know, Dutch shoemaker was really just trying to knock off the, the status and the appeal of the original Original Louboutin shoe to just have a broader base and sell their own knockoff version. Even though they weren't no- knockoff, like legally speaking, right. they were still pirating a design that the designer that Louboutin felt needed to be protected. Because
1: because seemingly this is a company that is trying to follow the pattern of Lubutan and be able to sell these shoes his shoes, as you mentioned, $1,500, the shoes that this other company may be selling could be $100, $200, whatever that number might be.
2: For sure, and the problem is that consumers are not oftentimes aware that it is a Louboutin shoe, if you know what I mean. They know it's a red-soled shoe, and because celebrities wear it, it means something, but if you ask consumers the name of the brand, not many people will know. And so it's fascinating because the color red on the sole has come to signal something, but it hasn't fully been associated with the Louboutin name. Right. Now, the people in the know, meaning the people who have high cultural capital and fashion, they know that it's a Louboutin shoe. But to the general population, it doesn't matter if it's a Louboutin or some other Dutch lower-end shoe. Yeah. As long as it has that red sole, it's signaling something.
1: Well, Deborah, in terms of the legal side of this, what is it about the, the U.S. courts that that are more aware of this particular aspect of, of trademarking? What is it within the legal system that, that we see here in the U.S.?
0: Well, in the U.S., it's really, really interesting. There's so much fascinating research being done in marketing, behavioral uh, economics, cognitive science, indicating how incredibly strong, how how incredibly expressive color is, how many different signals it sends. And in the U.S., courts recognize that the color can send lots of different signals, like flavor and uh, other things that don't have to do with the source, like we're talking about with the shoe. So it's, the U.S. courts have tried very hard to parse those messages and say, if you're sending a message that is that goes to flavor, like red for a strawberry-flavored drink, mm-hmm. then you're not going to be able to get a trademark in it. But if you're using it truly for source identification, and the public has grown to believe that the red does signal source then in that context you can yeah. get it protected so it's very it's, it's a really a very nuanced analysis that the u.s courts engage in they're trying to figure out first what's the purpose what's the expressive message being sent and secondly has that message worked
1: peter how prevalent I- is this here in the united states in terms of of companies wanting to protect this part of a a particular brand
3: well it, it's 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 certainly prevalent with um, uh, Le Louboutin itself, which brought suit yeah. in the United States a couple of years ago. Um, and The interesting thing about that case, which goes to Deborah's point – I'm talking about the U.S. version of it a couple of years ago – is that the court sort of tried to have it both ways they, they, in the U.S. They said, well, you can't just get a trademark on red soles in general, but we'll let you have it in a contrasting upper where the sort of top part of the shoe is not itself red. And intentionally sort of limited what they could do with it, trying to work this balance between source identification and not just claiming sort of red generally, um, and just where the consumers are associating it. So they've been active yeah. there. And we've also seen a lot of activity in sort of the sneaker space, um, like the Stan Smith stuff with the shell top sneakers as well. And yeah. to the the
0: Adidas, too. Um, Dan, do you mind if I jump in with a little bit of a, a, an additional uh, response to the sure. question sure. that you just asked, Peter? Sure. So I, I'm working actually on an article about this right now called Owning Colors. It's so fascinating because even though color is so expressive... 80% of the marks that have been registered in the last 25 year period are words. They're text. Then yeah. another 20% are designs. And if you go and you try to make a pie chart of all the brands that claim color in terms of trying to register them as a trademark, you—it it is 0.02%. It is such a small sliver in my pie chart. You can barely see it. It is the thinnest line. <laughs> and it is fascinating to me because we know how well color works in branding, and yet very few companies are really trying to uh, assert their rights to protect commercial distinctiveness through color.
1: You know, it, it's interesting. My background uh, working in sports years ago, part of it was uh, in marketing and, and sales for a professional baseball team. And, and uh, you mentioned the Pantone colors. Mm-hmm. I am very aware <laughs> about how companies are so. On top of what that shade of Pantone is for whatever the color may be, it, it truly is important. I mean, companies will tell if you're doing an ad in a newspaper or a magazine, no, you haven't gotten the right Pantone, replace the ad. So it, oh, yeah. the Pantone itself is truly <laughs> it is a, a very important part of the brand of the marketing of a, of a company.
2: Absolutely. I think that's absolutely right. And for Louboutin especially, as we were saying before, it's not any red sole, right? It has to be that specific shade of red. And because, again, consumers have come to have associations with that specific color red. So if it would be a different shade from a consumer perspective, uh, both Deborah and Peter were talking about the recognizability, well, then that would signal something different, right? And so consumers wouldn't know that necessarily it is a Louboutin
1: shoe. From an economic perspective, having this court case in Europe go the way that it did, at least for now, mm-hmm. the financial impact potentially on Louboutin is significant.
2: Oh, yeah. It's potentially disastrous because, again, Louboutin is one of the most counterfeited brand in the world. Uh, just in the United States alone, I think a couple of years ago, they had a shipment come in at the port of L.A., and they found over 20,000 pairs of Louboutin shoes, of knockoff off Louboutin wow. shoes, which wow. were worth $18 million if they were authentic. So you understand that now, all of a sudden, they, this could cause a real dilution of the brand. So not just knockoffs of the brand itself, but the second that this becomes very widespread and everybody starts wearing red-soled shoes, yeah. they lose that scarcity, right? That status symbol. Uh, they, they become too widespread, and so they're going to lose their distinctive power. And so it doesn't necessarily just mean that knockoffs are, or sales are going to go up, but sales of the original authentic brand could go down.
1: I'd be interested, uh, Peter, in terms of, uh, of the legal side of this. And obviously, again, this is Europe, which you know their their decision process is obviously different from what the U.S. is. But concern. The the uh, the worries about piracy about uh, counterfeiting, you would think that, that that the courts would be aware of this particular problem as part of the legal process. I, I mean, maybe they're not. Maybe they're disassociating one from the other. But the, but these two seemingly are correlated here in the U.S. and I would think around the world as well. Well,
3: yes, they certainly think of that and they're aware of that. But I think that there are countervailing concerns on the other side we have to always be mindful of, which uh, Europe is going is kind of, I think, looking at, uh, as the U.S. does as well, which is, you know, you don't want later designers to be worried about putting red on their shoes, right? We want to get red to be free for everybody to be able to use as a yeah. up-and-coming designer who is kind of thinking about new ways to put sort of a gloss lipstick type look on a shoe. And certainly there are ways you'd want to be able to do that without um, giving the appearance of a counterfeit, but we want to keep that sort of freedom and not to chill these designers into worrying about how they're going to use it exactly. So Europe, I think, is partly being mindful of that there as well and not just Vuitton itself.
1: This is also, uh, as you alluded to a little bit ago, Ludovica, I mean, they not only make the women's shoes, they make the men's shoes as well. So how much of a concern is it on the men's side of this issue? Because he also does put red on the sole of his men's shoes also.
2: I think it's a general concern for all of the Louboutin products, right? I think the majority of his sales still come from women's shoes. He he only started making men's shoes um, way more recently. Um, And just so we have a sense, like he's been making these red sole shoes since 1993, where he, he came up with the idea, literally just by he had one of his assistants was putting on red nail polish and he was tired of seeing his black sole and literally took the bottle of nail polish and just painted the 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 bottom red so i think it is more of a concern in terms of his general brand um and then specifically i mean of course it's going to be a problem for both female and male shoes but they are a very minor part of his business um so Again, I think it's more just a brand image issue than you know specifically sales of women of uh, women's shoes versus male shoes. Deborah. I'm still thinking
0: about your question about the counterfeiting, and because we know that uh, counterfeiting has been used to support all kinds of you know illicit drug trade yeah. and has been linked with terrorism it's going to be interesting to see if this decision holds up if they think wait a minute you know we don't want to make life easier for the counterfeiters.
2: <laughs> right
1: <laughs> well but this this decision is to to the European Union's highest court so where would this be uh, potentially appealed to next Deborah well, I think
0: that they could really rethink whether they, they need legislation to okay. protect fashion designs more, that is more consistent with um, copyright protection for fashion designs in Europe. It just really seems to me an interesting disconnect that I think they will have to address. And they care about their, you know, for, France, above all, cares about their, their fashion design. It, it is a huge source of income. It's a huge source of pride in the country. Um, I think countries like France and Italy are really, there There will definitely be um, pushes for uh, new legislation on
1: this issue. Are, are, there, are there legal standards set in place already in Europe, Deborah, country to country, as you said, France, Germany, instead of just the overall view of the European Union?
0: Right, I think there are, and I think that if you are, if there are way, if there, if the uh, counterfeits are deceiving customers, there, I'm sure there are laws that deal with con, uh, uh, consumer protection, just like we have in the U.S. That could be used as well.
1: Ludovica?
2: Yeah, for sure. Um, I think there is. Uh, I agree with Deborah. There is just not just European laws, but for example, I'm Italian, and in Italy, we have laws that protect consumers uh, from counterfeiting. Um, we have. Uh, criminal uh, laws uh, for counterfeiters uh, and for the consumers who purchase counterfeit goods. So there are fines. Uh, they, they say that you have up to a year in jail. I'm not sure how you know the enforcement actually comes into play, but yeah. we do have those kinds of laws against counterfeiting.
1: From what I understand, Peter, the, the court case that was here in the United States a couple of years ago was against Yves Saint Laurent, which uh, is obviously a very well-known brand as well here in the U.S.
3: Yes, I was actually going to say YSL, so I'm glad you said the whole thing for me. Um, <laughs> the, uh, the, um, the one interesting thing that comes out about that is we were talking before about this one that comes out of uh, the Netherlands being a low price point. But, of course, the, the YSL shoes wouldn't be kind of that type of price point. So you have a different sort of scenario there. I mean, when you're dealing with um, low price point goods, you have a, pr- a thing that trademark scholars like to talk about, which is, what we call more post-sale confusion. So at the point of purchase, somebody buying a $150 shoe probably isn't thinking that that's a bouton. They're not confused right then. But the consumers we're sort of worried about are the ones who are later seeing it on people's feet and maybe are then confused into thinking it's a Louis Vuitton, even though they didn't actually buy the shoe. They're just kind of seeing somebody either on a TV screen or uh, walking down the street, and that's the one to think it. So it kind of has a different uh, impact when you're thinking about price point as to which consumers we're sort of protecting or worried about.
1: But there's there's also, Louis there's a basic understanding here of if you're buying a pair of shoes, mm-hmm. and, and it, it, depending on the store where you're going, you're going to have an expectation of what's real and what's not real. I mean, a lot of this does really come down to the consumer uh, herself or himself.
2: For sure. And I think uh, to Peter's point um, there and in the counterfeiting world, you know, we we define deceptive and non-deceptive and not just in the product itself, but also where you're purchasing it. So if you're buying a pair of, uh, you know, if you're buying a Gucci bag on the streets of Rome, well, Yeah, that's definitely not an authentic bag. And even if the price point is high enough, just the location of where you're purchasing should signal that something is wrong about the, the source of that specific product. But the problem now is that Online, how do you know that, right? You don't know sure, yeah. where products are coming from. So, so, the internet has really made it hard for brands to protect their 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 products and their their product their their brands their trademarks online because it is so easy to create replica or copycat websites where consumers are completely unaware that the product they're getting is fake until it shows up at their door. So the yeah. Internet has made it really incredibly hard for brands to protect their uh, intellectual property. The criminal
1: element selling a pair of knockoff shoes for $1,500 a piece instead of if you were going to some other place where it might be 150 and you wouldn't have that expectation right from the get-go.
2: Absolutely, right? So it, I think it's about timing of when the deception happens. If you're buying it in the real world, the, there is no deception because you know that that $150 Louboutin shoe is not the authentic thing. But yeah. online, they could easily... Sell it for a thousand and just market it as a good price, right? As a good deal, sure, yeah. and you would have no idea that it's a knockoff until it literally shows up at your door.
1: Which obviously, Deborah gets us into into the world of of legal challenge and legal concern about. Retail sales online, which I know is a is a it's we 've talked with Ludovica about this before, but it is a huge concern here in the United States and around the world of making sure that when a when a product is being sold online that there is an expectation of uh, of truthfulness behind it
0: absolutely and it can be it can be tough for the eBays of the world too, I mean, they were sued over kind of for Tiffany jewelry right, and yeah. they don't have Um, they don't have a way of checking whether all the different eBay sellers are selling authentic things or not. So it really can be terribly challenging, especially for these auction-type sites that never never see the product ever. 844-942-7866
1: is the number to give us a call to join in. We are joined in studio by Ludovico Cesario of the Wharton School, uh, Deborah Gerhardt, who's an associate professor at the University of North Carolina Law School, and Peter Carroll, who is at the uh, New England Law School, an associate professor there as well. Again, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio111 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. So, With the fact that this decision has been given by the European Court, it it still feels like, in hearing from all three of you, that maybe necessarily this case is not over. What do you think, Ludovica?
2: I don't think it's over, right? Both uh, Deborah and Peter were saying before there are other things that Louboutin could do to still protect its red sole shoe in the European Union, and I think they will, right? Because again, the red, the red color is, or the red sole shoe is the essence of the Louboutin brand. If you take out the the red soled shoe, it, it becomes just another luxury, expensive, incredibly uncomfortable, by the way. <laughs> High end luxury shoe. Wow. Right. And so I think that they will go they will do some further they will take further action to make sure that they can still protect their their shoe.
1: Their Deborah? Soul. Deborah?
0: I agree. A hundred percent.
1: Peter?
3: Yeah, and I would just point out, even in the case that we're talking about, I mean, the one that that was decided in Europe was a very narrow grounds. I mean, they were just talking about registration as a trademark of this soul-shaped red color. Um, you have even in the local courts, and probably even when this thing goes back to the Netherlands, I imagine there would be other causes of action, such as a kind of, uh, you know. Um, Passing off or trying to confuse people in, in sort of other um, common law or in the, whatever the Netherlands equivalent would be. So we're really talking about a very narrow case um, in Europe right now. So I, I imagine that Louboutin has a lot of other options at its disposal.
1: So then, what is the option in your mind now for the Dutch shoemaker who is making the the, the lower price version of the shoe?
2: Well, well uh, I think oh, oh no, go, go ha- ahead. No, Peter, go ahead.
3: I was just going to say I think we have to see what happens when it gets back to the right. Netherlands court at this point. I mean, this was, a, it was sort of an advisory-type decision that they have over there. Um, so there are still further proceedings in the more local jurisdiction, and I think they'll probably wait to see what happens before taking any action.
0: Yeah, well, but if they, if, if through their marketing they try very hard not to deceive consumers, I mean, that's how I would advise them if, if I were their lawyer.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I fully agree. We kind of have to wait and see what happens. But if this ends up holding up, then they have no incentive to stop producing those cheaper red sole shoes.
1: Great having you all with us today. Thank you, uh, Deborah. Peter, thank you for joining us on the phone today.
2: Thank you. It was a pleasure talking to all of
0: you.
1: Thank you both. Thank you very much. Thank you. Ludovica, great great seeing you again. Thanks thanks for joining us.
0: For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.